Welcome to the Co-op Power Hour on KGNU's It's the Economy. I'm Nathan Schneider. I teach uh, in media studies at CU Boulder. We join you on the fourth Thursday of every month to learn more about economic democracy and cooperative business. My co-host this week is Jason Weiner. Hi, Nathan. Nice to be here. I am a shared ownership and cooperative attorney and developer in the Front Range in Colorado. The Co-op Power Hour is a production of the Colorado Co-op Study Circle, which Jason and I are part of, and you can learn more about it at our website at coloradocoops.info. Today, we have a really uh, great show, uh, uh, really focused on some of the um, some of what the Colorado employee ownership uh, sector has achieved. We're talking about the meaning of human resources in an employee-owned company. We're joined by one of our local experts, Jennifer Briggs. For 13 years, Jen has worked at New Belgium Brewing, where she was VP of Human Resources and a member of the executive team. During that time, she helped scale the company and helped it transition to 100% employee ownership. It was recognized as one of Outside Magazine's best places to work, the Wall Street Journal's best small workplaces, and World Blue's most democratic workplaces. Now she's an independent advisor with the Beister Institute at the University of California, San Diego, and serves on multiple boards of employee-owned companies. This is a, a, a really important topic and something that um, uh, uh, Colorado has really been uh, uh, taking a lead on as more and more companies are starting to venture into employee ownership. And this idea of employee ownership is uh, something that I, I, I think is a long time coming. It's something that has roots in uh, uh, the earliest history of the United States um, in this vision of a kind of um, of a kind of uh, a smallholder economy, the vision of people like Thomas Jefferson, uh, who envisioned an economy in which uh, uh, families would own their own land, work their own land, and generate their income through their ownership. And even at the time of Abraham Lincoln, as the uh, country was forming, starting to begin to form the, the corporate economy, uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln still held this vision uh, of a, um, uh, an economy of owners. Uh, he, he said, for instance, in uh, a speech while campaigning in 1859 in Wisconsin, uh, that if any, if any people, that is, continue through life in the condition of the hired laborer, it is not the fault of the system, but because of either a dependent nature which prefers it or improvidence, folly, or singular misfortune. Uh, it, it's kind of a strange thing to hear today at a, at a time where um, the aspiration of having a job uh, and producing more jobs in the economy is held as kind of the highest ambition. At that time, uh, uh, the, the uh, idea of wage labor was uh, uh, almost uh, a, uh, something to be avoided, something maybe you would have to do in the first few years of one's career or adulthood uh, just to earn enough to uh, gain some ownership slice of the economy uh, upon which one would, would build the rest of one's life. Um, and we've kind of lost that vision. We've moved into an economy where, where being a hired labor, laborer for somebody else is uh, kind of the highest ambition. Um, but but there have been there's been a, a new model emerging within that context over the last um, 50 years or so a new uh, uh, approach to shared ownership that allows people to hold jobs and have the security 
um, uh, and the collaboration of uh, uh, traditional employment, but also that ownership that that connects employment uh, 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 with uh, true uh, accountability and benefit enables people to really reap the the fuller benefits uh, of the value that they help create. Um, in particular, the invention of something called the Employee Stock Ownership Plan. Uh, first in the 1950s, uh, it was kind of enshrined into law in the 1970s and 80s under the leadership of uh, Louis Kelso, a, a California lawyer. Uh, now, employee ownership plans uh, include about 14 million workers in the United States. And now, since the 2008 uh, uh, financial crash, uh, there's been growing interest in employee ownership around the country, and we're seeing cities uh, and also now the federal government starting to uh, encourage and support employee ownership in new ways. Kind of notably, in this moment of incredible polarization, expanding employee ownership is one of the probably very, very few things that appeared on both the Democratic and Republican uh, uh, platforms in 2016. That's pretty remarkable. Uh, a point of consensus that we don't really notice. The idea that if more employees were co-owners in their workplaces, we might have a fairer economy. One other uh, point that the research often highlights uh, is that um, uh, productivity benefits can accrue from employee ownership. Um, uh, people can actually become more productive in their workplaces if they know that they're co-owners. But often the research also suggests this isn't automatic. It doesn't just come with ownership. It comes with how you do it. It comes with the kind of culture you create, the kind of shared governance and, uh, uh, and, and maybe transparency that can happen within those companies. And that's where uh, uh, Jennifer Briggs's work is so important, the work of uh, shaping the culture and community of a workplace. Um, I don't know, Jason, have, what kinds of experiences have you had with employee ownership in recent years? Well, I think it's in many ways a rediscovery that we come to work as fully constructed humans with life experience, with relationships. Um, it occurs to me uh, when I studied in college, uh, the history of the labor movement and labor economics and um, kind of human development organizational behavior, it seemed to me at the time that the, the discipline of human resources until fairly recently was a vision of humanity that was kind of deconstructed, that we came to work out of a compulsion to earn a living, to provide for our family. And it was this extractive uh, relationship or, or one in which we were compelled out of the home or out of our life to go to work, presumably doing something we didn't love, and that the economics of the job incentivized us to do that work, be productive, generate profit for the company's owners. And it was, you know, fairly recently, I think a lot of that has shifted in management theory. And my experience in employee ownership is kind of a fully wrapped acknowledgement of the relationship between humans and work, which is the fulfillment of dignity. It's in many ways embodying the values of the uh, unionism and, and collective bargaining relationship, but one that's far more collaborative, constructive, and um, aligned with the business necessity as well as the necessity of humans to kind of feel good about the work they're doing, uh, derive some either pleasure or pride, uh, earn a, li a, lot, a living. And so my experience is that it's such a positive 
uh, alignment of of relationships and incentives and and dimensions that it's just a mystery to me that it's not more prevalent. Um, and we're fortunate to have a guest who can help um, shed light on the examples that are out there that we just don't always talk about or see. And it turns out it is more prevalent than we uh, sometimes acknowledge. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're talking about the management lit. And, you know, I've been seeing some things in, you know, Harvard Business Review and publications like this lately talking about creating a sense of ownership, right? There's even a new book uh, from some former Navy SEALs called Extreme Ownership, <laughs> right? You know, where um, basically these management gurus are arguing that giving people this illusory sense of ownership is a way of uh, increasing productivity and cohesion. Um, why not just give them the real thing? It it just points to uh, the power of this kind of uh, of this kind of model. So let's turn to Jennifer Briggs. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Can you start just by? Letting us in on uh, uh, those of us who are, who um, you know maybe haven't worked in a big uh, company or haven't experienced uh, uh, what a human race resources department does. What is human resources? What is the uh, field that you uh, have spent your career working in? Well, there's a few different ways to look at human resources. So one is kind of the fundamentals that you learn in school that you're trained in the SHRM type stuff of compliance. So that's where most companies focus the human resource function is, you know, the um, Fair Labor Standards Act. Should they be paid a salary or hourly? Um, FMLA, are people getting paid or getting appropriate leave to take care of their families and themselves? And that's the baseline. That's that's almost the sad <laughs> state of it is make sure you're not doing anything illegal. Uh-huh. And that's one place to be. And I've worked in that area and I learned a lot from that area is just don't do anything illegal. But the more, um, I think, inspiring and altruistic way of seeing human resources is more as an organizational development function. So looking at the human element, looking at what is the company truly capable of becoming, how do we help um, not only democratize the capital structure of company, but how do we democratize the structure of it so there is distributed leadership? So there is ways for people to participate in the company becoming its best self. And that's the other side of it that I don't think gets enough attention or even gets enough practice. And that's the organizational psychology. Um, it's everything that you mentioned, Jason, of helping the company become its absolute best. So I got the foundational experience early on and then I transitioned into New Belgium and you know so much due to Kim Jordan and how she started the company thinking in a different way it her, she was a catalyst for me about thinking of human resources in a new and better and different way and then becoming able to practice and so my bachelor's degree is in community health so that's how I didn't intend really to be in human resources it, it happened um, and that's a whole different story. But um, so that's my desire is to build healthy communities. And what I learned early on was that businesses can build healthy communities by being healthy businesses. And New Belgium, to me, was the manifestation of that. Um, so getting to work there really gave me that. But I don't think I would have honestly valued what New Belgium did if I hadn't had that corporate experience before. I needed those skills. I needed that experience. I needed to understand the baseline. And to a certain extent, I need to understand 
the other side of the corporate um, experience, which in some ways isn't healthy. It might be profitability and revenue healthy, but it's not healthy for the human experience. So having that big company experience helped me become a better person at New Belgium because I almost knew what not to do. Say more about what that experience was like uh, working in the kind of conventional human resources yeah, so style. I worked for a company here in Colorado that got acquired. And classic to all people that go through that experience, the acquisition didn't go as great as it should. And that happens all the time. But it's because these companies don't really truly look at building a culture of the new venture together. And so we got acquired into a large publicly held company, and that company was WPP, and they're actually a great company. Um, so I don't mean to disparage any of it through talking like that, but you could just get caught in this machine. And the end goal really is to maximize revenue and maximize profit. And so you would divest or lay off people um, you know, to make that happen. And so it's the mechanics of running through how a company um, drives revenue and profitability. And that became my truth. That became what I knew. And so everything I did was, so I primarily did HRIS, which is HR Technologies. When you're doing running a big company, you have to systematize the human process to be efficient. Now, there's a difference between being efficient and being effective. So we were all about efficiency and streamlining, not necessarily building the most effective organization that we could. But in some ways, it didn't really matter as long as you're making money, right? Um, so, you know, you're looking at compliance, um, of course, making sure you don't do anything against the regulations, but you're just looking at creating an efficient system. And I got good at that. Um, I laid a lot of people off. Um, I was good at it. Um, what does that mean? <laughs> what does it mean to be good at laying people off? Um, and in whose eyes, I guess? Well, so... I've been laid off too. So that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, it means I think when you're good at laying off people, um, that you're trying to do the least amount of harm to them. So you, you know, businesses will, any businesses goes, the chances a business goes through some kind of downsizing is probably high. Um, we go through business cycles and sometimes resources have to be moved around. Now, usually companies do that as a last resort. Sometimes companies, do it as a business method. Um, so you go through your quarterly or annual cycles and you have to constantly be moving and it becomes a volatile labor market inside the company. And so that's an accepted way of being because when you um, get rid of people that make higher wages in exchange for people that, more entry level people that make lower wages, um, it's considered a business tactic and that's okay. I don't think it's okay, but that's okay in this world. And so that's what I came to know. And so I did a lot of that and, um, I got exhausted and, um, my kids almost did an intervention and said, you're really tired. You're traveling a lot. Don't think you're really doing it. And it caused me, my children caused me to look at my life and go back to community health and realize I wasn't doing what I felt like I was, was my purpose, my purpose for existing as a human. And so I opted out of that system. And then I got the call from New Belgium and it gave me a new system to opt into that I was better suited for. But I saw these things, the fundamentals are always there. Of course, all businesses should comply with regulations. And I think there's a good reason for regulatory frameworks. Um, you know, I 
I believe in these things that stop people from doing bad. But that shouldn't be what human resources does. We do that and protect that, but we should be doing what can be. And so, um, you know, for example, New Belgium uh, wasn't really doing FMLA, um, the Family Medical Leave Act, but it wasn't because they weren't complying with it. They were actually going beyond what would normally have to be done for a business. Um, so they weren't tracking things which you could say is kind of bad, but it's because they were moving beyond it. So, of course, we started doing the tracking and all that kind of stuff as we scaled up the company because we need to show that we're a good corporate citizen in the eyes of the Department of Labor, um, but we wanted to show that we're a good corporate citizen in the eyes of the community. And even more importantly, I think, is in the eyes of the consumer because that's, to me, the key with all this employee ownership. Um, I would love for it to be a consumer movement, um, not just a business movement, to where consumers look at, you know, the local movement, for example, has been great because people start thinking, well, I want to purchase at local businesses because I keep more of my money inside my community. Um, but I would also like that to be an and. And I want to purchase from employee-owned companies because employee-owned companies have a guaranteed structure, whether it's a co-op or ESOP, that keeps that money invested within the company and to those local employees and not only invested in the terms of income, but in capital ownership. And that's the wealth building part of it. Income is important. Wealth building is important too. And they're two different things. And I think we need to recognize that distinction as being important. Um, but that traditional part, it, it taught me a lot of tough lessons. And when you first came to New Belgium, it was already partly employee-owned. Um, you got this call. Did you perceive immediately that this was going to be a major shift for you? Or um, did you see it at first as just another job? That's a great question. No. Um, so let me make a distinction too. So when I started at New Belgium, they were 32% ESOP owned, but 100% employee owned. Um, so there's been some uh, regulatory changes with ESOPs um, that have happened, allowing more companies to actually benefit from an ESOP. Um, so they've always had this employee ownership ideal. It was just in different mechanisms of how that uh, was shared. Um, but when I got the call, um, the, the head of HR at the time, Bob Slade, said, hey, you should really consider this job. I said, I don't want to do that anymore. HR is, they're mean, evil. I did things to people that I'm not proud of. And he said, no, this company is different. Um, so I didn't even really understand the dynamics of employee ownership when I joined. What I did understand was the commitment to people. And that's what I wanted to be a part of. And as soon as I got there, I understood that there was this intersection, an important intersection between employee ownership, um, the culture, um, and then uh, the brand, and a cultural movement. So, you know, for craft brewing at the time, it was it was disruptive. Um, it was almost a counterculture movement. And New Belgium was so wise to hook into that intersection of those three things to make it become a successful business. Um, and so as soon as I joined, I that intersection became incredibly obvious. And I just wanted to be a part of it. Um, and I was lucky, Kim... Kim Jordan, the co one of the, the co-founder and uh, CEO at the time, she wanted us all to be business people. So my specialty, 
my studies, my experience has been in human resources and organizational development. But first and foremost, we're all business leaders who lead the business forward. So having a purpose-centered company where people who have these specialties, but my specialty is not to make my function efficient. My specialty is to serve the company and make the company the best that it can be. And I know that seems a little nuanced, but I think it's an important one. You're listening to the Co-op Power Hour, a regular feature on KGNU's It's the Economy and a production of the Colorado Co-op Study Circle. at New Belgium Brewing and an independent advisor to the Beiser Institute at the University of California in San Diego. Jen, I'm interested um, to delve further into your experience at New Belgium, but before we do that, can you back up and explain a little bit about what an ESOP or employee stock ownership plan is and how it functions? Yeah, so an ESOP is, um, as you said, an employee stock ownership plan, and it's um, basically a retirement plan. and it's has some um, there's it gets complicated, but there's some tax favor to people who sell their business to an ESOP. But there's also um, a lot of uh, favoring for the members, the beneficial owners inside an ESOP. So an ESOP is a trust, and people are shareholders within the trust, and it acts a lot of ways like a, cl- a qualified retirement plan. So um, that's invested in company stock. And um, people get the appreciation of the company stock in this trust tax-free until they take it out. So similar like that in terms of a 401k. Um, and uh, and it's, it's regulated. But And I know one of the things that people say against ESOPs is that you have your retirement plan invested in, in company stock. Um, but most ESOPs actually also have a 401k on the side. And so it's usually a second kind of icing on the top of the cake in terms of um, having your retirement invested through your company stock. But this then becomes a very um, motivating part of it is if I want to increase my long-term wealth, it's it's definitely long-term. I get to work towards the long-term health of my company, the long-term profitability um, and stability of that company. Um, so there's there's a lot of technicalities to it, but um, that's essentially it. And and there's a really interesting feature of this kind of model too, which is that it was kind of the original leverage buyout, right? Before corporate raiders were using, uh, basically borrowing mm-hmm. money in order to in order to buy out companies and mm-hmm. transform them for their own purposes. This was a strategy developed that enables workers to become owners without shelling out their own cash. They actually buy the stock on the expectation of its future value. So they take out a, usually a bank loan and use that to buy the stock. Um, and so in a way for the worker, um, it's kind of free ownership 
but it's a financed free ownership that is built on the future productivity that they genuinely are producing. So it enables people, in a sense, uh, more people to act like, you know, Wall Street capitalists, but in their own workplaces, um, do some interesting financial trickery so that they really reap the benefits of, of what they're producing. Yeah, and to that point, you know, it gives us people who are selling their businesses, you know, where you might sell it to a strategic buyer or, you know, they, we talk about the silver tsunami on the horizon. It gives the sellers a marketplace to sell their business, but it also gives the employees the opportunity to buy that business without having to have cash out of their pocket right now, which honestly a lot of people don't have. Um, so it creates this really great marketplace for that exchange to happen. And usually the trust, the trust can be um, managed or um, a, there's a trustee that looks out for the overall health of the trust, but there's a lot of external trustees that will act on behalf of the trust. So it's not direct ownership, and but then therein, which is one of the things I think New Belgium did great, puts the pressure on the company to create a culture around ownership um, to make this more real and tangible. And as you pointed out, Nathan, at the beginning, there's a lot of statistics that are showing employee ownership and ESOPs um, are more productive, but that requires the pairing of these two, the capital ownership through the trust and um, some kind of purpose-based, more participative management on the inside of the company. And those two come together to create that productivity um, and not this false sense of extreme ownership, just the psychological connection that's important. But having the actual financial connection is really important, too. So many of our listeners uh, will likely recognize New Belgium as uh, an exemplar of employee ownership. To generalize, can you give some examples in various sectors? It's not just craft beer. It's not just services. Employee ownership exists in across the economy, across industrial sectors. Can you give some examples of ESOPs, employee-owned companies, maybe in different sectors and different scales? Oh, yeah. I, well, so one of the things I do now is, um, so ESOPs, a lot of times the trustee will require an external board member. And so I'm on a board of three that are in very different sectors. So one is um, GIS Inc. And so they do global information systems work. Um, they work with governments and retail and do fantastic work. Another one is PFS Brands. And um, they facilitate fast food franchises in, inside convenience stores. Another one is engineering economics, and um, they work um, as a as a partner consultant for construction and engineering, primarily in the medical field. And so um, there's three right there that are vastly different from manufacturing um, or brewing. Um, but there's construction, I think, is a lot of mm -hmm. them. And there's a film that I'm very proud of, um, We the Owners. Um, Anyone can Google it. There's trailers. Um, of course, I have the full DVD. But um, that profiles Namaste Solar here in Colorado, New Belgium here in Colorado, and then a construction firm. Oh, it's slipping my mind. Do you remember their name? I, feel I like think it's DPR. Yes, it's an engineering. DPR. And um, three very different types of businesses with actually different employee ownership structures mm -hmm. um, between them just to see – so people can see how much they have in common because you can do this in any industry, any business. Um, and, um, there's different ways to share the employee ownership and they all have that one common energy of bringing out the best in people to help the company be its most productive. And it turns out that the largest employee, employee, uh, owned company is public supermarkets, which is a 
regional chain across Florida and has many thousands of of owners um, in in the grocery business. Um, and what's interesting about the multi-sectoral nature of employee ownership is that it largely tracks the same uh, kind of variety in the broader economy, uh, and it also represents employee ownership um, through the kind of meta-economic transition that we're going through now from more of an industrial manufacturing economy where, again, human resources may have played more of a role to manage and ensure compliance to an economy now based on services and knowledge where we're looking to further incentivize or motivate or tap into the potential of human creativity. And I think in many, many ways, New Belgium is representative of that same intersection. There's an element of, of manufacturing and production as well as an element of creativity and branding and service. Um, can you talk about why ownership was so central, shared ownership was so central to the founding and and growth of, of New Belgium? Well, you know, I think um, I worked more closely with Kim uh, Jordan, and she just, she believed in it fundamentally that, um, you know, that if everybody was participating in the profitability of the company, that that would just be better. And she, she's an amazing speaker and has done some wonderful um, presentations on this. But um, it, it was just fundamental to her belief system. And so she just did it. And I know that seems like maybe oversimplifying it. But, um, you know, when you start a company and it's small and you're, you know, there's this the classic entrepreneurial journey. And... Um, Sometimes you can't really pay people what they're worth, and so it's common for small businesses to give out capital ownership. What was unique about their view was giving that out in a broadly shared way. So a lot of companies will give out shared capital ownership for to the, the founders or to certain C-suite or you know big impact people in their early days, but as the company grows, they stop. Um, she did not want to stop, and she saw that every person in the company added value to the company so that they, they should all be sharing together. And so I think that was a really big thing. And then she was great, I think, because she hired a team of people who believed in similar things. So hiring for mindset, I used to say hiring for culture, and I've completely shifted gears on that because I think there's really unhealthy cultures that we don't want to keep mimicking through our recruiting and hiring processes. But I would say she was really good at hiring for mindset, being open-minded, thinking that everybody has value, um, thinking that everybody is capable of something more. And that just cascaded um, through the company. And even as we scaled up, we continued that broadly shared mentality and that that idea that we're all contributors to the business, so we should all be sharing in that. There's that saying of, um, I'm probably going to get it wrong, you can help me, but it's like inviting everybody to dinner, but just saying like you can smell the steak or you can smell the cake, but you can't eat it. Um, you know, so everybody is at dinner, but we're all, only certain people are going to get to share um, the delicious part of that that dinner. Um, and the other one I like, um, I'm a huge fan of Rutgers University and the work that they're doing there and Dr. Blasey and his book, The Citizen Share. But this idea that we're just leasing our labor to the companies, which you said at the beginning um, Nathan, but in employee-owned companies, whether it's an ESOP or co-op or employee-owned trust, we are leasing our labor to the company, but we're also getting the rewards of that lease that we 
give to the company. And I think that's a really important thing is we're not just getting income, we're getting wealth. Um, and so just Kim seemed to get that very intuitively early on that this is the way businesses should be run. Um, and she, she'll openly say like, I didn't go to CEO school and, um, I've come to believe maybe that was a really, really good thing to not have, um, not that all MBAs are bad. I have a master's degree too, (laughs) but, um, thinking about business in a new and different way. And so when you arrived there, uh, what kind of challenges did you face? What were, uh, the, you know, you mentioned, you know, some, some compliance issues, uh, what kinds of things uh, kind of appeared before you and you had to, uh, take on immediately? And then what kinds of challenges uh, did the growth that uh, then came to this really successful Colorado Fort Collins company uh, 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 present to you? Well, so the compliance is a good one to start with because, you know, when I started, there was about 180-ish people. And so that's where I started was just really framing in human resources and getting the, the simple things, um, you know, the payroll function became a full-time function before it was just kind of something that was done on the side. Um, 401k, benefits management. Um, and one of my challenges for me as a person, I think also reflected in the company, was they felt like in some ways I was bringing corporate mentality in because it was very free company. Um, and that's great. And there's things that you have to do um, to make that work. There's a framework that you need to do it. But I think what was important for me um, with that corporate background coming in was making sure I was stylizing things so it didn't limit the capability of the company. Um, You know, so um, like building an HR department, um, that our goal as an HR department was to serve the interests of the company Um, and by record keeping, we weren't trying to limit people. We were trying to keep a history of the company. Um, recruiting was another one of those, um, in the early days we did these, these fantastic things. Like everybody would get a handwritten note who submitted an application. And then at that moment we chose this growth, um, trajectory and all a human being would be doing was writing these wonderful handwritten notes and uh, Penelope was my coworker and she's absolutely fantastic. But we had to like stop that because how much time are we doing? So we automated um, the recruiting and collecting resumes. Um, we were lucky at certain points of time for a position in the bar, which was called the Liquid Center. We would get 300 to 500 applications for an open position. Um, so we had to get that under control because that's all we would be doing was managing it. So that's an example of where like corporate styled process efficiency meets fun, funky, bohemian um, company. And we also had to add more structure. We do uh, at, during most of the time, all of the time that I was there is these annual retreats where people would get to influence decision makers and leaders and get to really understand what was going on in the company strategically. At the beginning, they were a lot more free. And then when you start, um, so before I left, there was almost 900 people. We had to add a lot more structure to that because it's a huge investment. Um, You're flying people all across the country into Colorado and uh, you need to make sure it works. So we had to get more disciplined and have more framework around that. And at time people would say like, Oh, we're getting too corporate. It's like, no, we're just trying to 
put a process around this so it works. So that was just that constant stylizing um, things so that it fit the brand and the intentions of the company and didn't become too rigid. And one of the things I did, which is ironic as an HR person, is I found myself always pushing back against the people who wanted rules. I, I've developed this belief that management likes rules. Because then you don't have to actually lead anything. You can just say, well, there's a rule for that. Um, simple things like attendance policies. Companies, it's very traditional. Like maybe if you're absent three times, you'll get a write-up or a demerit or however they a coaching opportunity um, to be euphemistic about it. Well, we just wanted to trust people. Like, you know, come into work um, because your coworkers need you to come into work. And if you're not going to come into work, call. But then we get a new manager from the outside, maybe we're like, where's your attendance policy? It's like, well, it's a high trust in, uh, attendance policy. And, and we work here because we have dedicated people who want to come in. Might we have someone to use that from time to time? Certainly. But we're not going to develop rules to handle the 1% to 2% of issues in a company. We want to let the 98% flourish. Um, so I was constantly over the time of scaling up saying we're going to be a values-based organization. We're not going to be rules-based and we're going to do what's in the best interest of the company, which by the way is by serving the best interest of the humans and the people and our coworkers. Um, so those are just a couple like simple common examples of scaling up a company that um, most HR people want to develop handbooks and rules. I absolutely didn't. So I can hear the counter argument that you know without rules, um, there's a lot of gray area and confusion. Um, how do you enforce norms rather than rules? Was it difficult to fire people who? you know, didn't meet norms or didn't perform in that environment. How did you, and, and I guess the corollary to the question about how did you enforce those norms is how did you continue to preserve the enthusiasm for the open culture and, and encouragement for high performers? Cause I think those two things mm -hmm. probably go hand in hand. You know, we didn't fire quickly. Um, and sometimes that was a weakness. Um, but more often, that was a strength. We put a lot of times in developing people. So rather than saying you uh, disobeyed a rule, it was um, here's a contribution that you're not making. And so handling those on an individual basis. And the role that HR served there was kind of this mind keeper to make sure that we were treating people fairly. So you can do that through rules or you can do that through just your human knowledge. And so we wanted people, we wanted it to be consistent. And that was our job um, as a, our professional job inside the company to make sure that was, um, no one was treated more harsh or less harsh, um, especially when it comes into some kind of discriminatory factor. Um, and you can do that through rigid, rigidity or you can do that through being smart. We chose to be smart over just being rigid and not thinking through something critical. I'm a huge fan of critical thinking. Like, let's just be smart people and let's develop smart people so we can make smart decisions. And then, you know, keeping it vibrant, though, for high performers was really through storytelling in a big way. Um, these are great examples of the people that have flourished, who've done great work and um, who are really contributing to the company to give people something to be inspired to do, to inspire, to follow. Um, and then from a management teaching and training perspective, big on goal setting, 
Um, and then, um, you know, following that situational, flexible leadership style. So I, as a manager, I need to teach you and develop you. That's my job as a manager. And then at some point I need to let go and let you do the best work that you can be. And so really, and actually that's something I wish we would have done more of was really put a lot more attention on managers. Cause those are the people, especially as you grow, who have a lot of influence on the employee experience. Um, when you're small and kind of tribal, it's easy for us to all influence each other, but then you start getting into the 400, 500. Um, we had two breweries when I left, one in Fort Collins, Colorado, one in Asheville, North Carolina, and about a 40% remote workforce. And so the frequent pulsing of communication so everybody stays aligned is really important. Um, communication is somewhat a cliche, but it's a soapbox I think deserves to be climbed on because companies that learn how to communicate well with each other are the ones I think that are going to be the best. But communication, collaboration, staying in touch, staying aligned. So I like to say there's an alignment between goals and the purpose of the company, but there's also a unity around the values. And more importantly, you had on the norms. How are we going to live those norms? Because they change as you grow. Um, so you constantly need to be renorming around the company to show how you're going to live this value in the current time, the current time being, you know, 800 people all over the country. What does that mean? What does work-life balance look like when you're a small company and you have 100 people? And what does work-life balance look like when you're larger and have 800 people? The dynamics change. Um, and so you need to recognize that and constantly be renorming, but always staying true to your values. You're listening to the Co-op Power Hour, a regular feature on KGNU's It's the Economy and a production of the Colorado Co-op Study Circle. Today, we're talking about human resources in uh, employee-owned firms with Jennifer Briggs. Welcome back to the Co-op Power Hour, a regular feature on KGNU's It's the Economy, uh, and a production of the Colorado Co-op Study Circle. Today, we're talking about human resources and employee-owned companies. I'm Nathan Schneider. I'm a professor of media studies at CU Boulder, and my co-host today is Jason Weiner. Hi, nice to be here. Uh, Jen, it occurs to me that we're having this conversation about employee ownership, uh, among a broader set of social dynamics that importantly and critically are raising uh, issues around class, sexism, racism. And I'm wondering what, from your experience, you can say about how employee ownership has a role to play or a particular advantage when it comes to handling these broader social trends and issues. So... I think employee-owned companies are well-positioned and better positioned to do it because the employees in the company are the shareholders. And I had this experience. Um, I was in England um, with Graham Nuttall, and he runs the Nuttall Review. And the UK has a great employee ownership movement um, as well, and it's thriving. And someone asked me the question if sexual harassment was less prevalent in employee-owned companies. And I don't have statistics around that. I don't know. 
But theoretically, um, I think it should because when the employees are the shareholders of the company, they should care more about the risks and opportunities of the company. And so sexual harassment being an obvious critical risk to the overall um, organizational health, um, people should care more about making sure that people are treated fairly and equally throughout the company. At New Belgium, I was very fortunate because it was a um, the our leadership team had a big female contingent in an industry that's traditionally male, um, and that was fantastic um, in terms of getting to work there and how that manifested. But even in terms of um, race and class. Um, you know, we know that by having more diverse workforces, they are higher productive. We invite different thinking, different experiences into the workforce. And so the employee ownership model should welcome that even more than um, more traditional companies who are only pro focused on profit and just want to buy talent for the short term. We want to buy thinking for the long term. And um, when employee-owned companies can shift um, their social system to be that way, I think it can be really powerful. So I think they're uniquely able to do that. And if more of them can do that, I think it could be a real benefit to all these different movements of marginalized people to come out of the margins and be like really thriving and contributing in, in great ways. How have you seen employee-owned companies uh, recruit in, in interesting, creative ways to get outside um, you know, their traditional kind of field of vision and really bring in and attract diversity into into the company? Well, so one company I work with is in tech, and um, the tech industry is well known for just buying in people who already have embedded expertise. They've already gone to tech schools, and, and maybe they've already worked in Silicon Valley, and they're essentially just kind of trading labor, labor between themselves, which then creates this community that lacks diversity. Um, and so this company wants to really get outside of that. And so there's a company here in Colorado, and I apologize, I can't remember who they are, but they're looking for internships of people from rural areas and um, other communities that aren't considered tech-type communities. And so by doing this and reaching out and recruiting people from areas that are non-traditionally tech and developing the people inside the company can create diversity because there's a reality that we have to face that a lot of people aren't being developed um, in, into these industries. And so if we attack it from that perspective, um, I think it's, it's better. Um, um, you know, we don't think of the South as a booming hub for tech industry. We don't think of rural areas as a hub for tech expertise, but we can take it there. And they want to take it there. And so that's where they're starting. But I also think this um, not hiring for culture fit, but hiring for mindset is what are people capable of and how can we develop them as a business? Um, and that's what this company is doing as well, too, is focusing more on how can people contribute versus what skills are they already bringing in to the company. And um, that's a very different way of looking at human capability. Are we buying a task? or are we buying the future capability of this human being? I, I think right now there's a lot of interest in uh, companies trying to gain permission for broader kinds of thinking. You know, Jason's firm does a lot of work with companies that are seeking, you know, B Corp status or, or benefit corporation 
uh, uh, structures. Uh, people are turning to co-ops for these reasons. Um, uh, a range of, of innovative structures are really just a, another way of saying we want to be able to make decisions differently. We want to be able to incorporate you know, a broader range of interests in how we make decisions. Um, can you say a bit about, uh, in the context of these kinds of thorny questions, um, what kind of permission employee ownership enables managers to have? You know, how does it fit into the decision-making process when you're trying to balance uh, uh, different concerns uh, uh, or, or um, uh, uh, weigh different values uh, in the context of a kind of urgent boardroom decision? Well, you know, I think that's where these things come together. You know, New Belgium was a B Corp, and I think employee-owned can fit this very well, but that you don't just think of profits. You know, we had profits people planet and New Belgium, um, and somewhere um, maybe people aren't as environmental, but they have the profits and people. And so I think of thinking of the bottom line as multidimensional gives people permission to think in those dimensions. Um, so it's not just about my quarterly returns and what am I going to say to these um, anonymous shareholders on my call. It's about three years from now. How are we going to be, um, how are we going to fortify ourselves, but how are we going to create opportunity and prosperity across the board? And so those questions allow for a different kind of thinking to come in. Would, would the employees give that permission? I mean, would you have to say, you know, we, we want to make a decision that might result in short in lower short-term profits. Um, but, uh, you know, would you have to get kind of employee buy-in in order to make those kinds of choices? Well, theoretically, you do, especially if you're an employee-owned company in ESOP, because part of their collective wealth is based on the performance of the company. So ESOPs go through these annual valuation processes where a valuation firm comes in and looks at how much is the company worth. Um, but again, ESOPs are designed to be long-term tools. This is um, stock through a retirement plan. So it's not supposed to be about what's my wealth worth tomorrow or next year. It's supposed to be what is it worth in five years or even 10 years. And as is the case for some people at New Belgium, 20 years. So that's a horizon that we're not used to thinking on. Um, but I also think because of the way we've been programmed throughout life and the way we've come to learn business just through traditional media and sometimes business schools not all business schools are bad but um you have to teach people to think on these horizons so i think there's an obligation for leadership who want to run these longer term horizon companies to teach people how to think on a horizon to make um this idea i think companies need to frame up this idea of what's a really good organizational citizen how do they think and then develop them along that model um, because thinking three years out is hard. That's really hard work to get people to pick their head up from what you're doing on the day, like what's creating value today, to what's creating value in three years. Um, and not only to look at the marketplace, um, but to look at what's beyond the marketplace. But I hope at some point the marketplace will um, reward these companies are thinking like this and buy from ethical companies and buy from employee-owned companies and buy from B Corp companies, employee-owned certified companies, because they'll reward them for this long-term thinking and ethical behavior. Um, so that would be the, the dream. I almost think the consumers give us even more permission by buying from us and putting more income 
and more revenue into these companies and then employees can see that virtuous cycle of we're acting, we're thinking long-term, we're acting ethically, we're being kind of a beacon of light for how business can be done differently. And oh, by the way, people are going to buy from us. So we need that. We need that purchasing. Um, We need the consumers to orient themselves this way or else we run the risk of just kind of preaching to the choir. But yeah, I think the employees give permission sometimes, and I'm sure Jason, you probably experience this too, is it's by people opting in who work in the company. So a lot of people who chose to work at New Belgium were opting into that culture. And that's what they did so well um, was we created this culture um, so people could choose in. So they knew what they were getting. I hope, and I'm sure there was some, but I hope that people weren't thinking like, I'm going to work here for a year and get rich. Um, Because that's not the case. I think New Belgium paid well. We offered great benefits. We were a best place to work. And the reason you choose in is because you want to be part of this bigger picture. And by the way, here's the bigger picture and the story we want to create in the world. So when you get to that point of people knowing the culture, when they choose to work there, they're kind of voting for this model just by the choice to work there. How do you reconcile the belief in ownership and opting into a broader um, a broader culture of, of engagement with the need for agile decision-making. And some may hear the discussion and think, well, this could be unwieldy to manage 900 owners who all have an opinion or engaged with the need for businesses to make decisions sometimes adverse to not just the short-term interests of the company, but maybe even specific and individual uh, team departments or employees. How did you reconcile that? How do you set up effective systems and also manage expectations? That's a great question because um, at New Belgium over the course of the time, we had people that would get frustrated because they weren't voting on everything. And that was something that um, kind of got out into the public sphere um, because there was like um, a critical vote before my time on becoming 100% wind powered. Um, And so um, it was kind of legendary. And so people always had this desire to like literally vote, raise your hand and I'm voting. And to your point, that's not reasonable. Um, and especially like most of the marketplaces we work in are moving faster and faster and faster. So you have to be agile to adjust to the marketplace. Any business does, but then what you can do, like, I love that you use the word, word agile because you can teach teams how to be agile. So the, it just moves. And so the teams are participating together and then people are influencing leadership. Um, but I think as you move this participation scale um, to the teams and maybe not so much at the company-wide level, it is essential that leadership becomes more transparent. So those two, participation and transparency, um, are kind of, they run um, almost opposite one another. So maybe you can't vote in company-wide decisions anymore because it's unwieldy and too many things are happening. Um, but then that puts the onus on leadership to be more transparent about why they're making decisions, um, to make that thinking visible. So if we're making decisions about new marketplaces or where to build a brewery, the obligation is this is why. This is the information that we have that that says this is a smart decision. Certainly it's a risk. I mean, businesses take on risks all the time, and sometimes you fail. But here's the thinking and the calculation that went behind it. 
Um, so the need for communication goes up as the company gets larger and participation goes more at the team level. But um, we followed a lot of the work of Dr. Chris Mackin um, with the rights and responsibilities of ownership and finding places for people to influence leadership and make that thinking visible and then teaching managers how to use agile processes and participative um, styles at the team level um, and then how to create autonomy at the individual level. So each one had its uh, framework. And so that goes back to, like I was saying earlier, the complexity as you grow, you need to become more disciplined and kind of judicious on how you use these structures, but you have to have them um, because it can get unwieldy. You don't want chaos. Um, you want a business that's working really smart and working really smart together. So you have to find facilitated ways to make that wisdom come out in the company. Um, the retreats were probably the best example of influence. So as a leadership team, we would come up with examples of questions, um, you know, provocative questions that we needed help to be the best leaders that we could be. We needed their information, their thinking to help us think better. Um, one year we did future casting. So we asked everybody, uh, I think it was 2020, which is actually just two years from now, but we asked them like, imagine the year 2020 and New Belgium is at its best. What will we be doing? What will we look like? Um, how do things need to change? Um, you know, that start, stop, continue idea. Like, what what will it look like? Um, what does growth mean to us? Um, one year Kim at an all-staff meeting, she basically kind of, you could consider it a vote, but it, she was taking the temperature of people of, do we want to grow? And probably 97% of people raised their hand because they knew the growth would create opportunities for people in the company and opportunities for the shareholder. So there's a lot of temperature taking, like how do you all feel um, that happens in those environments? And so you have to do that kind of stuff, but maybe you're not, um, you know, I've heard stories when New Belgium was very small of like, should we sell beer in Texas? Well, that's not an all staff vote when you have 900 people. Um, that's a staff vote when you have 40 or 50 or whatever it was. Um, and then you want expertise. Like, I don't know, should we sell beer in Texas? What are the metrics? What's the marketplace like? What's the, um, you know, how many people are drinking beer in Texas? You know, there's more calculated decisions that you can make as you get bigger. So you want to have that specialization and you want to respect those specialists, but you also want to make room for influence. Yeah, I, th I think it's so important for us to sometimes shake our naive ideas about what either cooperative business or employee-owned business is supposed to look like, um, and to recognize that um, co-ownership doesn't necessarily mean uh, everyone having their hands in the pot at the same time, and that and that we can understand that differently around accountability, uh, around appropriate structures, and as a company grows, that those appropriate structures will change. Um, and, you know, Jen, in, in your work now, you're, you're helping different kinds of employee-owned companies face some of these same challenges. How can people find out more about your work and maybe reach out to you if they're interested? Well, of course, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, so under Jennifer Briggs on LinkedIn, I have a website, alifeandmosaic.com. Um, so I started my own advisory that's um, called Mosaic Creation. I work with DOWIE, the Democracy at Work Institute. Um, and we do open book management workshops uh, for smaller co-ops, work with the Beister Institute for the larger ESOPs, um, developing middle manager leadership and uh, doing ESOP feasibility studies and transactions. 
Um, so those are the three areas. And then I'm also, like I said, serving on boards. And so that work is very specific around um, these companies are highly, highly invested in making employee ownership work. And so um, having someone on the board that um, at least has some experience, uh, what successes do we have and what mistakes did we make and how can I help other companies do that and avoid that? Um, I love board work is probably my favorite work because to me being on a board, not just for me, but um, someone with the human element and organizational development expertise, but ESOP symbolizes to the company how important this is. Um, and I think that board selection process is really important because it shows people, um, someone who's an environmentalist, who's a woman, who has employee ownership experience, um, and who cares about the progress of the people, that sends a message. And I'm not saying I should, I don't, I shouldn't be on every board, but, um, like that board selection <laughs> process is like really maybe you should be. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well, you mentioned also a couple of resources, um, uh, uh, the book, uh, a citizen's share by Joseph Blasey et al. Um, uh, fantastic introduction to the tradition and practice of, of, uh, employee ownership in the United States. Um, also you mentioned the certification, uh, effort, uh, employee ownership certified, uh, eocertified.com is a new initiative to actually bring certification and visibility into the employee ownership sector to help also consumers see, uh, uh what employee owned companies are around them. Are there other resources that people might check out if they're interested in learning more? Yeah, the Democracy at Work Institute has a phenomenal library of resources. They have conversion guides that break down the process and really make this stuff really accessible uh, to businesses of all scales. Um, and then there are technical assistance providers and consultants that do this work day in and day out. Um, I can't say enough great things about Dowie and the work they do. Um, the, here in Colorado, the Rocky Mountain Employee Ownership Center is a great local resource. Um, they do local, very low-cost um, workshops, and their membership is really affordable as well, too. So that's that's a good one locally. Yeah, um, and we've had Executive Director Halisi uh, Vincent on the mm -hmm. show several times. Yeah, the NCEO is another great resource, the National Center for Employee Ownership. ESOP specifically have the, employee, or the ESOP Association, and they also have S-Corps of America, um, and both of those arms do lobbying. And, you know, I think lobbying is an incredibly important thing. Um, and they're both specific to ESOPs. But, um, you know, some people say ESOPs are bipartisan. I'd actually like to say they're nonpartisan because it's about creating the economy in a more healthy way. And that's not political. That's just a good way of existing in life. Um, so that's the way I look at it and their efforts. Um, we really do need those fans behind this work to create um, a regulatory structure around this um, because when, when we get more of that either tax favorability or regulatory structure to promote, whether it's through the Small Business Administration, um, even Veterans Association to help say employee ownership is a more viable way of doing business. I think more of them will happen. So we need the consumers, we need the regulators, we need the politicians um, to get more attention on this and make it happen. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Jen. Thank we're, you. We're so lucky to have you on this show and to have you in Colorado as one of the leaders of the employee ownership movement mm -hmm. in this country. Thank you. We have a great community, um, all of us together. Absolutely. Uh, so you're listening to the Co-op Power Hour on KGNU's It's the Economy. Um, 
were a production of the Colorado Co-op Study Circle. You can find out more about the study circle at coloradocoops.info. Um, we don't have too much coming up that's planned right now. You can find out uh, uh, about our upcoming events on our website. Um, uh, but we do have in November a collaboration uh, with uh, my workplace, uh, CU Boulder, uh, an event called the Colorado Shared Ownership Summit. And this is bringing together uh, ESOPs and co-ops and other forms of shared ownership across the state. Um, uh, uh, we've got some really wonderful speakers lined up. We're going to be uh, bringing these sectors together in, in, I think, a really exciting new way. That's November 7th. Uh, you can find out more again at coloradocoops.info. Uh, Is there anything else that people should be aware of coming up in uh, in Colorado? Well, more nationally, there's, um, I can't remember the full name of the bill, but there's the Main Street, I think, Employee Ownership Act, which is um, now in the Senate. This is a piece of federal legislation that will emphasize and build capacity for employee-owned workplaces through the SBA loan program. And it just passed the House. It's now sitting in the Senate. And it's an important piece of non- and bipartisan legislation that um, listeners can call up their representatives to support. Absolutely. And and here in Boulder, for instance, you know, our representative, Jared Polis, has been a very active supporter of employee ownership uh, as a strategy for community wealth building. So uh, he's been on the show uh, already. Uh, so this is really cutting edge stuff. You know, we're poised to to step up uh, the, you know, U.S. employee ownership movement in big ways. And, uh, you know, I hope uh, after listening to this show, you'll uh, you'll join in. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we look forward to uh, being together again next month.